0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 11. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to make sure you get one. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, reading God's word this morning. As it's already been mentioned, if you're a guest man, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, we hope that uh, you've been blessed by the love of Christ in this place already. And we, we pray that God touches your life in some way, shape, or form today through his word. Um, if you're joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. Anybody who's listening to this podcast or checking out our YouTube channel later, we want to welcome them as well. Um, you guys believe that God has, has uh, something in store for you this morning? Anybody believe that? That didn't sound very convincing to me. Let me tell you something. When we come seeking what the Lord has for us, he will always deliver. Always. He has something for you this morning. And I know this for sure because I rewrote this message like three times. So I know God has something very specific that he wants to speak to us about this morning. And I was burning the, burning the midnight oil last night, so if I have a couple extra bags this morning, you know why. But I promise you there's something. God has just been not only wrecking me through this passage, particularly uh, as we get to the end of it, but um, just it's an incredible reminder to us of something that I think that we, uh, we know and yet we neglect. And so I, I'm excited to get in the passage. Stand with me if you would please this morning. Mark chapter 11. We are studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and uh, we are Monday of Passion Week. Jesus is just just in a few short days, he's going to be hung on the cross, crucified for the sin of the world. And so uh, actually most of the Gospels were written, 50% of John was written on the last seven days of Jesus. The majority of the Gospels are written on the last week of Jesus, the last week of his earthly life. And so there's a lot going on here. So let's see if we can glean something from it this morning. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, it says, on the following day... Uh, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, uh, fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he... Um, drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and uh, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away at its, to its roots. And remember, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you uh, crushed, cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe uh, that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if uh, you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we know that you have something, again, specific to say to us. God, I pray that you would help us to not have the heart of Israel as they heard these words being spoken to them. The dead, cold, hard heart, full of pride, that would not hear your voice, but that this morning, God, we would just be real and that we would be receptive to what it is that your spirit wants to say to us. We know, God, that you want to change our lives, and so we believe in that this morning. That's why we're here. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. What would you do if you found out that your entire life was a lie? You woke up one day, and everything you thought that, that was true was all of a sudden untrue. Maybe you were married to somebody, and you woke up one morning, and you realized they have a completely different identity, that there's somebody else. You know that does happen. It's on TV, so we know it's true. There are reality TV shows of, you know, I don't even know what they're called, but stuff like that where I thought I knew my husband or whatever, you know. We never say anything about the wife here because that's just not, not, not biblical, but you know. But uh, the reality is, is is, that does happen. Maybe you were, you know, you, you grew up in a home and you were loved on by your parents and, you know, you th- everything was just normal and then one day you found out, you know, early on in your 20s or 30s that you were adopted and all of a sudden you're like, what? Why didn't you tell me earlier? You know, sometimes we try and protect the, the, the truth from our... From our Uh, the ones we love the most, and sometimes it creates more damage. What would you do if you found out that your life was a lie? Would you go numb? Would you crumble inside? Would you freeze up? Or would you accept the reality and begin to rebuild what it is that you desire your life to be? What would you do? That's what we find happening in this passage today. Jesus is addressing Israel, and he's telling them, your life is a lie. Everything that you're doing is completely contrary to the way that God desired it to be. Whoa, talk about just hitting you right in the heart. And yet they heard not a word. They didn't hear a word they didn't listen to anything that Jesus had to say. You can see the response of the Pharisees when Jesus cleanses the temple. What happens? They say that they were afraid, not of Jesus. They were afraid for fear that the people were astonished by his teaching. They were perplexed because they wanted to kill him, but yet they knew the crowd was with him. And so, how do I keep some notoriety here? but get what I want, and that's what they'll figure out. They will get what they want. They're not listening. They're not hearing what God the Son wants to say to them. And my prayer is this morning that we hear what he says, that we don't miss what he's saying to us individually. God is so big that he can take a passage like this and he can make it very specific to every single one of us in a format like this. How incredible is that? It's called the Holy Spirit. He, is, he will lead us into all truth. And that's my prayer this morning is that we don't miss exactly what Jesus wants to say to us. Jesus is revealing the facade of Israel. Their vain worship was not acceptable to the God of Israel. Jesus is revealing the lie firstly because he doesn't want them to go to hell you do realize that every person that perishes under this uh, false religious system is going to hell. Not because, they don't get to go to heaven because they're Jewish. Like if they're not following the format that God instituted, they're going to hell. There's only one way to be forgiven and that's, it's prescribed by God himself. We don't get to choose the avenue for forgiveness when it comes to being made right with God. The Lord himself is telling them, listen, I love you. That's why I'm telling you the truth. Now, sometimes the truth really, really hurts. But God would only reveal it because he loves you and he desires for you to be brought back to a place. How, much, uh, how unloving would it be for him to withhold it and not hurt your feelings? That would be completely unloving. So Jesus is revealing this because he loves these people. And he doesn't want them to go to hell. Number two, he wants to stop the propagation of the lie. He wants to stop Israel from continuing to spread this false sense of hope that they have. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. A proselyte is someone, is a Gentile that converts to a Jew. You travel across the seas to make one single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Wow. I mean, wow, if Jesus Christ showed up this morning and he said something like that to you, what would you do? He's saying your life is a facade. It's a lie. But he's doing it. Because He loves you and He loves the people around you. And He desires to lead all people to reconciliation to the Father. He wants us to be reconciled with God and with each other. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today. God is faithful to reveal to us the lie. And again, it's motivated. It's not motivated by anger. A lot of people love to come to this passage and they're like, Jesus just turns into a lunatic and he just starts freaking out on people. Was he upset? Yes. But what, the thing that we have to understand, and this is where, you know, we, we cross the line when we get angry. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, um, um, uh, you know, be angry and sin not. And then how many times do you do that? <laughs> I don't do it very often, but I sure quote the verse. Look at how righteous I am. I'm so angry at what they're doing. And yet here's the thing about God is if you read the Bible and it relates to how slow in anger God is, it's always coupled with how loving he is. You can read it over and over and over again where it says that God is slow to anger but abounding in what? In love. He is abounding in love. God loves us so much that He will reveal the lie to us. And here's what I want you to hear. is He's not mad at you. He's mad at your sin. God is angry with sin because sin separates us from Him. But, he's, but He loves you. And that's something as a human being that I can't quite differentiate. Because when someone sins against me, I'm angry at them. And maybe you understand what I'm saying. And so I need God, the Holy Spirit, to change my heart when it, as it relates to being truly righteous in my anger. Jesus was upset here when he deals with this situation because he understands that sin is separating. And he understands that the devil is, in a sense, completely deceived this entire nation. Once again, these are God's people. He loves them very much. He sent them into the world. They were to be the light for the entire world. And yet they were nothing more than a facade of religious system that had no connection to God. The only connection that they had was the temple. And so Jesus does what, uh, what, what, what God has done over and over a couple times in Israel. He will destroy the temple once again to show them that their hope is not in a building And you can already see where this goes and how it lines up with the church. Israel was, they they were a fruitless nation. They were following after their own hearts, doing their own things, and they were calling it worship. And that's what's happening in our culture today, is the church is being filled up and people think it's a building, and so they come to an event and they, they have this form of worship and they leave here unchanged because they're not allowing the God of the universe to touch their hearts and they have a sense, of salve, a sense of false hope when they leave and they go into the world hunky-dory and Jesus says no. He wants to say, hold on a second. None of that will get you to heaven. It's only by truly worshiping me through the blood of the lamb that was crucified for your sin that rose again on the third day. He is the only way to salvation. There is a prescribed method for forgiveness and his name is Jesus. And yet we've made it about all kinds of other things. Man, I'm so grateful that God loves me enough to tell me the truth, to not allow me to to live a lie, you know, and to go on thinking that I have something that I don't. And maybe you're here this morning and God is going to say that to you. And the right response would be, don't turn away, but turn towards me. The right response would be, God, forgive me. The right response would be, God, I'm turning away from my life and I'm turning to you today. That's the right response. What if Israel had done that right here? What if they would have turned around and they would have repented? Well, the God that I know in the Old Testament, he's the same God as the New Testament. And what I see him do is he forgives. Anybody else see that? Uh, when God says he's going to judge somebody and they turn their heart towards back towards him, God recants the judgment because he repents. This person repents. God understands repentance, but his church does not. And God would say to us today, man, repent. Turn away from your sin and turn towards me. I'm calling this message Leaves and Thieves. Uh, this, this encapsulates the nation of Israel during Jesus's ministry, this nation is full of uh, false hope and idolatry. The temple is, at the time, is fruitless and prayerless. Uh, and Jesus is going to use a couple illustrations to show us uh, what exactly the nation looks like. He's going to use a fig tree that has has the evidence of being healthy and yet it is fruitless. And then he's gonna he's gonna go to a temple that is supposed to be. The, the very center and the heart and soul of this nation where worship happens and he's going to show them that it's nothing more than a trading, a, a, a bartering system. It's nothing more than a money-making machine. He's going to deal with the heart of Israel. And God is in, the, in, in so doing is going to deal with the heart of us this morning in the same way. Listen, the church is also in very much the same way, full of leaves and thieves. Full of people that have an appearance of healthy, you know, vibrant, spirit-filled life, and yet there's no fruit. Filled with people who are leading churches that are more interested in lining their own pockets than they are about loving the people that come through the doors. And so I'll spend... 20 or 30 minutes telling you about my, my new book that just came out this week and let you know that you can get it for 19 at Barnes & Noble or wherever it might be. But, but at the end of the day, I'm not teaching you God's word. Let that not ever happen in this place. First, num, number one, I'm not a writer. And I pray that I'm not a thief. If you're taking notes, the first thing I want to show to you is Leaves don't always tell the truth. Leaves don't always tell the truth. Look at verse 12 there. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Notice, it was the following day. The following day, what is that? What, what happened the day before? Well, if it's Monday, then the prior day to Monday is Sunday. It's Passion Week. What happened on Sunday? The triumphal entry of Christ. Jesus had rode into Jerusalem on uh, the virgin back of a, of a colt, a foal, a donkey. He did it. And everybody was screaming, Hosanna. They're singing, Lord, save us. Jesus, he's the king of the world. He is our savior, and everybody's yelling these things, and yet their hearts are so far from the Lord. It was prophesied to happen that way, and Jesus told the, the, the religious leaders that told him to, to rebuke his disciples for shouting out Hosanna, tell them, tell them to stop saying that. And Jesus said, man, if I do, even the rocks would cry out. This day was ordained by God, and no one was going to stop it. Now, he, he, it was that day that he spoke of, and he was coming from Bethany. He was, Saturday, he was spending time at Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and uh, Simon, the person who was a leper that was no longer a leper because Jesus was hanging out with them, and they were having dinner together. And so they were there. He was coming from Bethany, which is about two to three miles away, and uh, he was coming on the eastern side of the temple, and he would come through over the Mount of Olives. Jesus knew this path very well because he stayed in Bethany all the time. And so the, the, the account goes from last week that after the, as he rides on this donkey, that Jesus then begins to weep over the city of Jerusalem. He's weeping over this, this apostate nation, this nation that has gone astray, that's doing its own thing. Um, he's he 's broken for the hypocrisy that is happening in this in this temple that God had ordained for himself and so he he begins to weep over it you know demonstrating the fact that he was loving towards these people he desired good for them and not evil to give them a future and a hope and yet they would turn away from all of that and then it goes on to tell us that jesus would would prescribe, you know, he, he would tell them, man, he was saying, if you would only understand the day that is here, the visitation that is upon you, what he was talking about, as I, you know, so eloquently did last week when I lost you guys when I was trying to show you the math on Daniel chapter 9. That was pretty awesome. But uh, you should see a, an entire congregation go blank. It's just like, whoa, am I here? But uh, it was pretty pretty great. You could look the the math up online if you like. But uh, the idea is that there was a 70-week prophecy of Daniel. And uh, one week equals how many years? Seven. So we're not going to do the math, but the the point of it is, is that it was the 69th week that the Messiah would show up, and then he would be cut off. And it was to the day that was prophesied that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. He was referring to that day. The day that Daniel spoke of, and he was saying, man, if you would just understand the word of God, it's all there for you. And so, you know, because they didn't, Jesus then pronounces a curse upon the nation, doesn't he? And he says, man, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed. He prophesies that the whole nation is going to crumble. And guess what happens in 777, 7, 7, 70, AD? The entire nation because God does exactly what he says he's going to do. And so, God, Jesus is now dealing with um, uh, th- this city. And, and we didn't read this last week because it was contained in Mark's gospel and I was in Luke. But uh, in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, here's something that also happened on that day. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything... It was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. So that night on the triumphal entry, Jesus showed up at the temple and he just looked around. Now, you can imagine what he's thinking. Because the very next day, he shows up and he cleans the temple out. So when Jesus shows up weeping for a nation that has gone astray, and he begins to look around at the house of worship, and he sees traitors... And he sees money changers, and he sees thievery, and he sees all kinds of things that have no business being in God's house. And you wonder what his thoughts are in those moments. Well, actions speak louder than words, and we see what his thoughts are. He's not happy, he's not pleased with with what he's seen in his father's house. Now, here it tells us Mark says that Jesus was hungry. The next day, so it's Monday morning, he's traveling from Bethany again down to Jerusalem, and it says that he's hungry. Anybody ever get hungry? Of course we do. Jesus is a human being, and so he got hungry, and and yes, he's God in the flesh, but he's also fully human at the same time. Now, some people think Jesus was hangry. Anybody like that here? You know, some some of you guys get super hangry. I'm one of those people that if I don't eat at a certain, you know, at least, you know, every two or three minutes, I get upset. And uh, my wife just starts throwing food at me, and I'm like, you know. And then I calm down. But, uh, but uh, you know, Jesus wasn't hangry. He was hungry. And so he's walking along, and he sees this. Um, Luke's gospel tells us this, this tree standing by itself. It's alone. It's a fig tree alone by itself. And he sees it to be presenting, being presented as something that should have something for him something that should be bearing fruit because it has leaves. And, and, it, and it tells us that it wasn't the season for figs, even though this tree was lusciously green and, and you know, it, it wasn't the season yet. This was, this was probably sometime in April, and uh, the season wouldn't come until, you know, harvest for the first harvest for figs would be in June. And so there, but the fact that this this tree was an early bloomer would suggest that there should be figs on it, either from the last harvest, which was in December of, uh, you know, so it would have carried over, uh, or it should be bearing at least, at the very least, it should have unripe figs on it. It's presenting itself as being something that it is not. It is a fruitless, fruit-bearing tree. Now, what good is that? What good is a fruit tree that bears no fruit? Now, some of you environmentalists are saying, well, they give out oxygen off and stuff. To Jesus, a tree that isn't designed to do what it's supposed to do is a bad tree, and a tree that does what it's supposed to do, and and this is in Israel. This is the mindset of a Jewish person. They would look at a tree, and they would say, well, describe that tree, and you and I would go into all kinds of details about the tree being green, and how many leaves it has, and the type of leaves it has, and how it buds, and all this kind of stuff, And and To the Jew, they would simply say this that's a good tree or that's a bad tree. They wouldn't go into the detail. The tree is the function of what it was created to be. And it was either good or it wasn't. There was no in between. And Jesus is approaching this this tree that's bearing the, the signs of what would seem to be a fruit bearing tree, and yet it has nothing. It's bearing nothing, it's false advertising. It's saying, I have something that I don't have. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to illustrate Israel through the fig tree because we know Israel or the fig tree to be a symbolic picture of what? Of Israel, the nation of Israel. It's a picture. And so Jesus is going to symbolically illustrate the fact that the fig tree is fruitless. And therefore, when the fig tree is fruitless, uh, you know, it's the only good... it's for now as firewood because it's no longer doing what it's supposed to do. And so Jesus curses the tree. He says, no one will ever eat from you again. What he's really saying is that Israel will never, ever again be able to provide the kind of fruit that God intended it to provide in the first place. They were God's chosen people, and they are God's chosen people. We're not replacement theologists here. We don't believe that the church replaced Israel. What we know to to be true is that God turned his, his, his heart away from Israel because they rejected him. They rejected the God of Israel, and so the God of Israel turned his heart to another because Israel, as I said before, was supposed to be a light. They were supposed to be this beaming light of hope for the entire world, and yet they became self-contained like many churches. And they focus on themselves and and make sure that we're fat and happy inside of here, but they don't do anything outside. That's an unhealthy church. It's an unhealthy church to be inward-focused. We need to be outward-focused. This is not a destination This is training ground for the ministry that God has you for, that he created you for, that he designed you for. And so we don't come here and say, okay, I'm done. No, no, this is just where it starts. This is where God hands you your directions, and then you go into the world and you tell people about Jesus in whatever form or fashion he tells you to. Um, Israel was not doing that. They were a tree that was not bearing a fruit tree that was not bearing any fruit. and so Jesus looking at it just goes, man, you're no longer any good and in fact there is a uh, Jesus told the, the, um, the this analogy, this parable of the fig tree already and he said, you know this the, the, this guy would um, that this farmer had a fig tree and it would wouldn't bear any fruit, so he let it go for another year. And after three years of bearing no fruit, he said, chop it down. It's not going to bear fruit. God knows, and only God knows, at what point someone has hardened their heart so hard against him that he hardens their heart for them, just like Pharaoh. In other words, you know, at some point, when a person hardens their heart, when they've heard the gospel over and over and over again, and they reject the gospel, they reject the word of God, they hear it over and over, and they're yada-da-da-da, yada-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. And at some point, God says, you've made your decision. You've chosen your path. I don't know what that point is, but I know that's what the word says. I know that's what God did with Pharaoh. At some point, when Pharaoh hardened his heart, God said, And then the word word shift, and it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There comes a point in time when God does that, and he does that with Israel here. Their heart was hardened. The shepherds of the nation, man, were thieves. They were fruitless. They weren't doing what they were designed to do. And God, Jesus said to this fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Is Israel the light of the world today it is not contrary to what most people in the church think Israel is not the light of the world who is the church Jesus said you are the light of the world you are the light of the world why because you have God inside you you are the temple now of the Holy Spirit he's inside of you you've been fueled with power and with mission to go into the world and to make disciples. And God said, you know, that was my plan for Israel, but they hardened their heart against me. And so I'll turn my heart towards another that will do what I ask them to do. And yet, fast forward 2,000 years, and I wonder what is going on in the church. And I wonder if the church has not hardened her heart against the Lord. And again, the church is not not an entity. It's people It's people. Are the people of God hardening their heart against God himself and against his word and against what he says our lives ought to be like? God is not done with Israel yet. He's not cast them off completely. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 that God will restore Israel at a point in time in the tribulation period. He's going to restore Israel spiritually, but they'll never be the nation they were supposed to be again. This was their last chance. God destroyed the temple. God carried uh, the children of Israel away to captivity multiple times, trying to get their attention. What does he have to do in your life? What does he have to do in your life to get your attention? Because he will do it. Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to miss it. So listen to what he has to say. Jesus comes to this this tree, and he, he realizes here that leaves don't always tell the truth. Just because somebody looks like a Christian, they say they're a Christian, they talk like a Christian, they carry a Bible, you know, they have the big Christian symbol on their shirt or whatever, you know, they have a fish on their car, and they have a crosses in their house, does not make them Christians. Does not make them a Christian. The one thing that declares that a person is a Christian is fruit. You can have green leaves all day long, but if you don't have the fruit of God's Spirit in your life, if there's not a glimmer, if you've never seen a change in your life, the Bible would say that you're not a Christian. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. It's the truth. And God wants to be honest with us. The fruit that God places in your life is the capacity to love people beyond your ability. And for you and I, we have a very, very small ability to love people. So just an ounce more is pretty significant in our lives. But it's love. It's joy inexpressible. It's peace that passes all understanding it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. That's the fruit that we look for in people's lives. You know, so many people are sin, sin sniffers when we should be fruit inspectors. We should be looking for fruit in people's lives, not sin in their lives. Is there sin in Christians' lives? You can shake your head like this because there are, There is. But the reality is that doesn't exclude them from being a Christian because we all are sinners. What excludes a person from being a Christian is whether they have fruit in their life or they don't. And time will tell. Time will tell. Jesus told a parable of a sower, of someone who, you know, who comes and they they, they hear the gospel, four different types of hearts. One one receives the gospel quickly and they, and it's rocky ground and it springs up and it just withers away. Um, You know, one person just, it's just so hard that that the Word of God sits on top of the ground and the bird snatches it away. One of them is a ground that's full of thorns like the cares of the world and and the Word of God springs up and gets choked out by all the cares that are in a person's world. All three of those people thought they had something that they didn't have. There's only one heart in that parable of the sower's that is a genuine heart that believes and that's the one that's the good soil that comes at some point in their life and their heart is plowed and they're ready to receive and the word of God goes in and it goes deep. And for that moment in time, their heart is sunk into the Lord. They're his. Doesn't mean they don't mess up. Doesn't mean that they don't make stupid decisions. Doesn't mean they don't backslide or any of that other thing. But at some point in their life, they received Christ and here's the deal if the holy spirit is in you he will bear fruit he will bear fruit you will not be a fruitless fruit bearing tree you might just have an ounce of fruit on you but you'll have something when i lived in florida i had a little orange tree in the back my backyard and this thing i i i don't i don't know what i'm doing i don't have i'm not a i don't have a green thumb or anything but i wanted to see this thing produce oranges and i just moved there from Montana so you can imagine how that goes and i I'm, I'm trying to get this thing to produce fruit and and um you know it's not it's just not doing it and one day i go out and the whole time i lived at this place i saw one tiny little orange on the thing but that was enough it had the it had the ability to produce fruit and, and that's like maybe some people's lives that, are, that have come to Christ and they get so sucked into things that they produce some fruit and then their, their lives don't, they're just too enamored with the world. And that's what happens when you're enamored with the world. It chokes out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so God would tell us, man, leaves don't always tell the truth. Examine your heart. See if there's fruit in your life. Have I ever had genuine love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in my life? Secondly, if you're taking notes, we see that thieves always still the most valuable thing first. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple And he was teaching them and saying to them, is is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus had just been in the temple the evening before. He knew the scene. He saw the thievery that was taking place again. This is not the... The, the, the same event that happened in John chapter 2 where Jesus cleanses the temple. This is a second time in three years that Jesus walks into God's house and he says, are you serious? Again? You did it again. And he starts to flip over tables. And this is not meek and mild Jesus. You know, this is, you know, he's flipping over tables, literally. The idea that he was driving people out is the idea that he was literally Pushing people by force out of the way. Now, the reason why he's doing that is because, again, Jesus is upset with the sin that is happening in his father's house. But he loves the sinner. I won't go into the details of, of, of you know, the, the money changing and all that kind of stuff. The idea is, is that they were ripping people off. They were charging them too much, and they were bringing sacrifices in that weren't acceptable, so that they had to buy. It was a, it was a racket, man. And Jesus saw what was happening, and he said, "Oh my goodness, you guys are a bunch of thieves. You're not, uh, you know, you're not allowing my father's house to be what it was intended to be. You've made it a business where there is lots of buying and selling." And it was at the expense of genuine worship where people just wanted to come in and give their sacrifices to God. And so what ends up happening? When Jesus gets upset with somebody about something, he doesn't just flip over tables and you know push people out the door and leave it that way. What I love is the example here that, yes, he was angry and he sinned not. But what he did was taught them what was wrong in the first place. Sometimes we just get angry about stuff, and we don't follow, even if it's righteous anger, we don't follow it up with why it's wrong. You know, as a parent, that's like the number one thing when it comes to discipline, is that your kids understand what they did wrong. Uh, Like, you, you, you discipline them, yeah, and you're upset because they did something wrong and all that kind of stuff, and maybe it was you know, direct disobedience to you. But the moment, and so in that moment, you may be angry, but then you teach. You, Jesus always taught. He never just condemned. He just, he started to teach them what was wrong. And he used the word of God. That God's word is so far more effective than anything, and I mean anything, that you could ever do. Like, it is a sword that is sharper than any sword. Like, if you really want to get to the heart of somebody or you really want to slay them (laughs) in a righteous way, you use God's word. If you really want to speak life into their hearts, you use God's word. Because the Bible says that the wrath of man cannot produce the righteousness of God It should not surprise you when people sin because people are sinners. And so our response to that is anger? Well, no. Our response to that is, hey, let me teach you. That's what Jesus did. He turned immediately, and, you know, he he began to calm down. He showed them physically what the problem was, and then he taught them what the problem was. He demonstrated both. And here's what he told them. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Thieves always steal the most valuable thing first. you know that? When someone comes into your house in the middle of the night and you're not home, hopefully, they're not going to take your $3, you know, uh, silverware that you have in your drawer that has no value they're going to be looking for the good stuff and they're going to go for the good stuff and they're going to leave the junk behind they don't care about the invaluable stuff what they care and some things are way more valuable to you than they are to anybody else but they're looking for whatever is valuable the same is true in God's house the most valuable thing in this place was true and genuine worship it was prayer it was the ability to, to where people can meet the living god interceding on their own behalf to the Lord, that they could come and they could pray to God, that they could be the Hannahs of the world that would come and cry out the cares of their lives upon the altar of God, and they could know that they're connecting with God. But there's no money in that. There's no money in that. How do we make money? How do I make money? How do I turn that into a lucrative business? Well, let's get rid of that, and let's make it about the sacrifice. Let's make it about the temple tax. That's how we make money. And I'm afraid that's what's happened in the church. I'm afraid that that's what's going on in the church. Why aren't people coming to the altar and crying out their hearts to the Lord? Because it tells us here that God's house, what his intention, what we should be known for is not for sacrifice. What we should be known for is prayer. That's what it says, my house be called, will be called a house of prayer. Not that it's just a, a, you know, house of prayer on the door. But people would say, that's a house of prayer. That is a house of prayer. That's what God's intention is for us, that we would come into this place and we would connect with him in a real way. And so oftentimes, uh, you know, what happens in churches is it just becomes a program, and we just shuttle people in and shuttle people out. And there's no real life change happening because people aren't connecting with God because the most valuable thing is being lost. Connection with God through prayer. Listen, it is the first line of defense and the first line of offense for the believer. Prayer. I'm so thankful, man, that, you know, here's what's sad. Here's what's sad in the passage. Nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. They just went on. Oh, okay, it's about sacrifice. Okay, Oh, I can't take mine. Oh, okay, well, I'll give you this one then. Okay, well, I have to pay this. Okay, I have to, you, I'll, I'll let you rip me off because, you know, I'm just going to go with the flow. Don't think for a moment that God wasn't pricking the hearts of people and saying this is an abomination to me. This entire thing is a racket. It's an abomination to me. It's not what it's supposed to be. But the masses came. And they just ran through the cattle guards, and they did what they were showed to do. You go here, you do that, you put your money there, and you go out the door. <laughs> Some churches are like that because it's not about God. It's not about God at all. it's about man's kingdom. And I'm not hammering on the church what I'm saying is that you know it, it, well. I am, but the reality is this. There's not many people listening. I mean, there's, there's, there's teachers and preachers that are saying the same things that I'm saying, but not many are listening. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power because it's not what God intended it to be in the first place. It's not about Jesus. You know, Jesus is all we got going for us here. And if it becomes about anything else, then we got nothing going for us. Because Jesus is all that any of us got going for us, man. It's got to be about Jesus. Now, I'm thankful that I have a brother here that, you know, has been listening to God and something has been on his heart for such a long time. You know, when I first met Dan Moreski, you know, the Lord had been putting on his heart this idea of, of making this place a house of prayer. Not that we don't pray. I mean, we have corporate prayer. We have, but this is a very specific kind of prayer. It's intercessory prayer. It's called, you know, when you and I got problems, we, we pray for one another, and we have our inner Facebook place that we, we go to. But we're talking like the vision that Dan has is for the nations. Is that not what God says here? My house will be called a house of prayer for Columbia? Yes, but for the nation's. And God has been birthing this thing in Dan's heart for over a year, and he's, he's just been, been talking to a, a, myself about it, a couple of the elders in the church, and, um, and he talked to Brian and I this last week. And, man, we're going to go forward with this vision that Dan, God has put on Dan's heart to make this place a house of prayer that is going to affect the world because it's about the nations, It's about whatever God wants to do. And we're asking you to pray with us about this specifically that God will give us the details on exactly how he wants it done. You know, we don't want to go through the motions. And we've been praying, God, how do you want to use us? (laughs) How about you just do what, what I intended you to do in the first place? You become a house of prayer. How about that? Okay, Lord, we'll do it. Yes, we will. So here's the thing is we're going to convert a room in here. We're going to make it a prayer room and there you know eventually as this thing unfolds in the way that you know we're going to open this up for anybody. It's not just for our church. This is for the nations. We want to pray for the nations and that was what um that's what we were talking about, you know, here is is gosh, why do I keep forgetting your name, man? <laughs> I'm serious. Man, it must be my cholesterol medicine. <laughs> I'll blame it on something. But, but anyway, I, I'm serious. Mike, okay, now I got, I got it. 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 His name is Mike. His name is Mike. His name is Mike. I got it. He's, he's my brother. He's, he's been here forever, and I, I've done it twice to him now. Lord, please help me. Forgive me, Mike. I'm sorry. But that's what Mike was talking about in announcements. When he was talking about, you, we're going to give you an opportunity to um, get involved in this. You're going to have an opportunity to pray. And and I promise you, I won't be the one writing the prayer request down, so that'll be a good thing. (laughs) I told you I was burning up midnight oil last night, man. So anyway, most embarrassing things that happen to pastors. But anyway. So sorry, Mike. I love you, man. So we're going to make this a house of prayer, and we need you to pray. We're asking God to show us exactly what he wants us to do. Because his house should be known for prayer. The church is completely and totally not what it's supposed to be today, guys. You know, Spurgeon said, there'll there'll come a time when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And that is so true. And that's the day we live in, man. We're living in those times. And people aren't listening. And they don't have the gall to stand up and say, no, this isn't right. This isn't what it's supposed to be. Rather than really even address it, people just leave. You know, they'll just leave the fellowship because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want conflict. And so they'll just leave. How unloving. How unloving. uh, What an opportunity God gave you to be used by him in that moment to reveal, to be a spokesperson. And yet, I'll just leave because it's easier for me. Listen if I ever do anything to offend you, if we as an eldership do anything that you feel directionally is wrong, don't leave. Come talk to us. We want to know we're human beings. We make mistakes, and we want the Holy Spirit to lead this place. And so we're asking you that if, the, if, you, if you sense an error that you don't leave, but you do the biblical thing and you come talk to us about it, and, we're gonna, and we see that in the Bible here what we're supposed to do. God wants this house to be a house of prayer, man. How can we affect the church? We can talk negatively about the church all day long. How can we affect it? How can we affect our nation? How can we make America great again? It's not by our president. I'll tell you that. Even though that's the slogan. He doesn't have the capacity to make America great again. Only Jesus does. And here's what I would say. You know the verse. But it's in in its second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and I mean really pray. Like bona fide on my knees, crying out to God, humbling myself, saying, God, I don't have it all together. My life's a wreck, but I'm pretending like it's not. But I'm gonna cry out to you in humility and I'm gonna humble myself and I'm gonna seek your face and turn away from my wicked ways. Your promise to me is that then you will hear my prayer, you will forgive my sin, you will heal my land. It's right there. What we can do is pray. We can't change the entire American church culture by, you know, our smarts or by some gimmick or by some man-centered, you know, thing. We can do it through the Spirit of God in prayer. And so we can just begin to ask God to convict the hearts of pastors to teach God's Word and those court kinds of things. Prayer is so valuable. And God says if we will humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our sin, we'll see Him move. The chiefs, priests, and the scribes, man, they see this and they're like, This guy is ruining our business, and I don't like it. They have no regard for what he's saying at all. They're just hard-hearted, and they're just saying, whatever. We want to kill him. We'll find a way to kill him. We can't do it now because the people are with him, but we'll sway the people and we'll turn them against him so that we can crucify him, and so we'll set him up, and that's exactly what they do. Listen, the lie has been exposed. Israel's a fraud. And that's ex- exactly what Jesus said here. You're, f- you're being frauds. You're apostate. You've taken on your own belief system. You've totally abandoned God's, and you're doing your own thing. He reveals the truth uh, regarding his disciples in verse 20. And as they passed by the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away in its roots, and Peter remembered what... And said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes uh, that he believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Again, Peter sees this fig tree the next day. It's Tuesday now. And they're walking from Bethany back to Jerusalem because it's Passion Week. It's, th- this is the Passover time. They're going to to Jerusalem, and he sees this, again, this fig tree, and you know what? He's amazed. He's amazed that Jesus' words came true. And I see such an incredible similarity here with Peter and myself that when God promises that he's going to work everything out for my good, and then he does, I'm amazed. I'm like, oh, wow, Lord, I can't believe you did that but doesn't my word say that I'm going to do that? Didn't I already promise you that I was going to do that? Why are you so amazed? And that's the question I would pose to you. Why are you so amazed when God does what he says? When he meets you where you are, when he heals the brokenhearted, when he gives you peace that surpasses all understanding, Uh, when when he convicts your heart with his word, why are you so amazed? Because he said all these things in his word. He said it was going to happen. So what is his... You know, it's interesting that th- this, this point then turns to uh, Jesus telling Peter to have faith. Because that's what it is. That's so what he's telling him. Listen, you have to have faith, Peter you got to always maintain faith. You always have to believe in every situation that you find yourself in. You saw what I did to the tree. Now let that be a lesson to you and believe me when I'm not here because he's about to depart. And so what he begins to tell these guys is you're going on a venture of faith that you've never been on before. And this is going to be incredible, but you're going to have to believe me. You're going to have to trust me beyond anything you've ever trusted me before. I was walking with you physically. I will be gone, and you're going to carry the gospel into the world, and you're going to change the entire world, just you fellas. Just you 11 guys. You're going to go do that. The key to to a fruitful life in Christ is abiding in Christ by faith. It's how you came to him. It's how you reside into him, and that's hopefully how he finds you when he comes back, is that you're living in a life of faith, that you're believing in what God has to say and what his word says. He tells us here, whoever says to this mountain, go here or there, if he doesn't doubt in his mind, uh, you know, no, not, not in his mind, in his heart. If he doesn't doubt in his heart, it will come to pass if he believes What Jesus isn't saying is you can name it and claim it, folks. He's not saying that you can have everything you've ever wanted in your life, that he's the genie in the bottle, and you can just wish away everything that you desire. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is as it relates to his calling on your life, to the things that are going on in you, that God is bigger and and able to do things that are unbelievable. And he will do things that are unbelievable in your life if you'll believe him. And so he uses this analogy that's just so unbelievable. I mean, who, would, who could move a mountain? Jesus. Jesus could physically move a mountain if he desired. And what he's saying is, if we have faith, we can too. He's telling us to believe in him to that degree, to believe the unbelievable. When you find yourself, you're, you're backed up against a wall, you have no hope, you have nowhere else to turn, that you just believe God and you trust him. You just believe him. You don't doubt. I wonder if you're here today and you're and you've been struggling with this whole idea of believing. And God is saying to you today, dare to believe me. I'm I'm asking you to, to, to try me on it. Dare to believe. You're in a situation that you've been in, and you're and God is saying to you this morning. Uh, you know, you, there, there is hope in the situation, but now you're just kind of jaded and you're cynical about it because you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard it before. I've prayed about it. I've believed in whatever. And God says, well, actually, you know, your faith is being played out. And the reality of that, you're really not walking in faith because you're not trusting me. You're just, you've just accepted that I haven't moved in your time frame. And so now you're not believing me. And God would say, uh, you know, to you this morning, don't stop believing. Not the journey song. He's telling you today, don't stop believing in me, in my word. Trust me. Hold on to to, to, to my word and believe it with all your heart. If he spoke something over your life and he hasn't done it in your life yet, that doesn't mean he's not going to. Don't stop believing in what it is that he desires to do in your life. We're so impatient. And we want it now. And God says, sometimes he's just trying to reveal, show us to reveal our true heart. Listen, your heart condition has to be in the right place for God to move miraculously. And so he says, you've got to trust me. Listen, the, the, the one thing that would hold you back today is your own pride. From receiving what it is that God wants you to receive in your life today is your own pride. Verse 24, he says, just listen to what Jesus says, there, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Receive that today. Just receive it and believe what it says and trust him with his will. Just believe it and trust him with his will. God, I'm just going to believe you and I'm going to trust you no matter what. Amen? That's what we're called to do here. Jesus goes on and he tells his apostles you know, that they're going to they're going to have to do that if they want to be used in the way that God wants to use them. They're going to have to trust that way. He, he, you're going to have to have faith if I'm going to use you. And then here's the last thing he says. You also are going to have to have the, the other F word is forgiveness. It's not the, the one you're thinking of. It's, it's the forgiveness word here in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive and if anything, anyone has anything against you, so that the, your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's heretical to pray a prayer of faith and not be, not forgive people. It's absolutely heretical. It's hypocritical to pray a prayer that says, "God bless me, but curse them." I don't, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not forgiving towards my brother and my sister. I, I'm just I'm holding in this unforgiveness towards them. And you know what? But I want you to bless me, God. I'm coming by faith and I'm believing. You're not believing enough that he can help you forgive. So maybe you're not believing. Because the reality is God wants us to forgive. And, you know, this is one of these things in, in that I believe um, is such a huge, huge issue in the church. People get offended by other brothers or sisters, by something that happens in, in the church, something, you know, somebody says something to you, you didn't like it, so you go home, you're mad about it, and the next thing you know, you start avoiding them like the plague, but you've forgiven them, right? Oh yeah, and you keep coming to the altar and taking communion because you're not really believing that God's word tells you to go from the, the communion table and go make it right with this brother or sister. Listen, God's serious about forgiveness. He's serious as a heart attack about this. This is one of the things that is so, so Abuse in the church. People don't forgive, but they want to be forgiven. And listen, there are some of you here today that are harboring unforgiveness for people here in this midst and you're just like, oh man, I'm not, you know, but, but you're saying that you're forgiving, but in your heart tells the real story. You know, just, just a word to the wise, that if, if you are avoiding somebody like the plague, you haven't forgiven them right if you're just like i'm not talking oh there they are and you're just you turn the other way that's because you're harboring unforgiveness if you're thinking bad thoughts about a person you're trying to you know then you you're unforgiving you haven't forgiven them and so what i want to encourage you to do is be real with each other man if you're get offended in some way live out the gospel the way it, the, live out the word of god the way that it's designed to work matthew 18:15 it says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell them his fault between you and him alone. Don't go tell the whole church. Go tell him or her alone. You, mano, mano. You know, just, hey, this is what happened. I got offended, you know, and I'm just telling you that I don't like you right now. And then they can come to you and they can say, oh, well, you know what, I don't like you either, but will you forgive me? You know, seriously, though, this needs to happen. This has to happen if God's church is going to move forward the way that he wants it to happen because he's saying that forgiveness is what it's all about, but my people are unforgiving. Does that make any sense? Practice this. I'll be honest with you straight up. I had to call somebody this morning before I got in the pulpit, and I had to ask them for forgiveness that I was was harboring some unforgiveness towards this person, and I had to say, will you forgive me? Because I can't teach this passage without doing this. And I have to model this for my church because I also struggle with this. It's easier to flee than it is to deal with the situation. And so I would tell you this morning that if there's stuff in your heart that you, first and foremost, listen, there's a time to overlook, the Bible says. You know, every little thing that somebody does, I don't like the way that you chew your food. You irritate me. You've offended me. You know, okay, there's a time to overlook, but then there's a time to be, um, you know, there's, there's a real time when sin is involved and you're, uh, you're offended and you can't get it, you know, you, you're just, you can't uh, get eyeball to eyeball with the person that you are. You need to do this. You need to go to them and you need to tell them what happened. Maybe they have no idea what they did and they didn't mean it to come across that way. Because if God's church doesn't forgive, then how can we go teach about a message that is all about forgiveness? So I just want to encourage you this morning that if that's you, that you go and you make it right. Because Jesus is serious about this stuff, man. He wants his church to be about his father's business. His father's business is about changing the world and it starts on our knees, but then it's lived out through our lives as we interact with one another in faith faith and in forgiveness. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word and just for your goodness to us this morning, Lord. We thank you for just speaking into our lives, God, and for meeting us where we are this morning, God. And I I can't but think that there are many things going on in people's hearts this morning, God. Some people are thinking right now, I wish this guy would be quiet. I want to go to lunch. And some people are thinking, Lord, you really nailed me, but I'm not going to do anything with it. And yet there are others here this morning that aren't sure if they're even really saved, but they're not going to say that. Lord, you know where every single one of us are here today. We are barren naked before you. And it's not a coincidence that you have every individual here this morning for this particular message because you were speaking to every one of us. And so we would ask you, God, that you would lead us now by your spirit to respond to you in the same, in, in the spirit and truth. That we wouldn't deny what it is that you are saying to us this morning, but we would be honest and we would we would soften our hearts and that we would hear your voice. And for some, Lord, if it's They're here and maybe they're thinking, man, I don't even know. Do I have fruit in my life? I don't know. I don't I don't know if I've ever really seen a change in my life. Well, the one thing you can do this morning to have that assurance is you can you can confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can just simply come to Him and say, Lord, (laughs) I mean, maybe I've even said these words before, but Lord, I'm a sinner. And I've sinned against you, and I want to be forgiven for my sin this morning. That somehow I'm faced here again with this idea that I need forgiveness from you. So I want to receive that this morning in the name of Jesus. God, that I want to turn my life over to you. I want, I'm repenting of my lifestyle, God, that I haven't been living the way that I should be. And I want to turn my life back over to you this morning, and I want you to take reign. And I want to live for you. I believe that you died for me. You rose again from the dead for me. And I want to rise too today, Lord. I want to walk in newness of life. I don't want to be the same old person. I want to be changed. So I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In a simple prayer like that, God will radically change your life. For, for others here, maybe you've been distant towards God and you're upset with him about something. And he's just saying, come back to the table this morning. Be humble. Be humble. Be humble. Turn over your sin today and just receive the forgiveness that he desires to give, that he died to give you this morning in a recommitment of your life to Christ. Maybe there's some here this morning, God, that have received you and are walking in you, but yet there is unforgiveness in their hearts this morning, God, that you, that you would just say to them this morning, Lord, make it right. And you're putting the person on their heart even now, and they know it. Lord, give them the courage, give them the boldness by your spirit to come and to make it right with them. So just move in this last song, we pray, Lord. We ask your spirit to be amongst us and just to cause us to respond as only you can in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.